always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. There's something really cool happening where music and this whole digital world that we live in are starting to come together. And in this new digital music world, Apple has a lot of technology to bring to the party. How many times have you gone on the road with a CD player and said, oh God, the CD, I didn't bring the CD I wanted to listen to. To have your whole music library with you at all times is a quantum leap in listening to music. Nearly 21 years ago, Steve Jobs took to a stage in Cupertino, California to announce a new product. He promised this new product would change our lives forever. It was the Apple iPod. What is iPod? iPod is an MP3 music player, has CD quality music, but the biggest thing about iPod is it holds a thousand songs. This little device did change our lives, but it did more than that. It completely revolutionised the music industry and the way that people bought and listened to their favourite songs. And it paved the way for the iPhone and the streaming services that dominate our world now. iPod is the size of a deck of cards. A deck of cards. It is 2.4 inches wide, it is 4 inches tall, and it is barely over 3 quarters of an inch thick. Two decades later, though, there's not really a place for the humble iPod anymore, so it may come as no surprise to hear that Apple have decided to stop making it. Actually, it may be more surprising to hear that they're still making it today. It is the end of an era. Yeah, Apple announced it will no longer make its iconic iPod. That device revolutionized digital music, allowing people to take their music with them everywhere. I'm Connor Pope, and this is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, how the Apple iPod transformed the world. iPod, a thousand songs in your pocket. Patrick Frayne, you write about culture for the Irish Times. For our younger listeners, and by younger I mean anyone under the age of 35, could you maybe describe what the world of music was like before digital downloads or iPods came along? This is, uh, I, I, I love these moments to be an old man. So when I started getting really into music, music was all on vinyl and tapes. So we'd buy vinyl and we'd buy tapes, but we couldn't really afford to do that that often. So you were very dependent on borrowing stuff or your friends taping stuff, which was illegal then. So there was a real sense of hunting for stuff and being turned on to other music. And then you'd find the thing you were really into because you couldn't just be into all of it. So you'd decide that you were a goth or a smith's head or a metaler. And there was all these little subsections and cults. And then you found your tribe and you circulated music like it was kind of secret lore amongst you. That was my experience of getting into music. You mentioned that home taping was was, was illegal. In, in fact, we were always told on the records that home taping was killing music. But it really wasn't killing music. But Napster came very close to killing music. Can you remind people what Napster was? So the difference is that the tape never sounded as good as the original. You always still coveted the original. So what changed with Napster is Napster came along in 1999. 
It was two guys called Sean Fanning and Sean Parker. And they basically allowed everyone who had music on their computer as MP3s to have access Everyone on the system had access to everyone else's MP3s, basically. So it was file sharing. It was seen as vaguely illicit by mainstream people and the mainstream music industry. So there was loads of lawsuits. Like Metallica took Napster, took its own fans to court to some degree. It's really about controlling what you own. You know, we clearly own our own songs. We own the master recordings to those. And we want to be the ones that control the use of those on the Internet. That's it in, in, in essence. So we are going after Napster legally in the legal form, but at the same time, which is becoming increasingly important to us, is to try and get this debate out into the public forum, to try and make people understand what's at stake here. They kind of, in a lot of ways, they were very prescient. They saw what was happening, which was these tech giants are going to start eating their dinner. And audio experts will tell you that MP3s aren't as good as vinyl, but technically speaking, most listeners won't tell any difference. So there was no reason why you needed to buy the music anymore, particularly if you were largely listening to it on computers. And I think that's the breaking point. That's the massive change, because at that point, for a whole generation, it came a little late for me. So I think it's millennials. It's kind of disrupted what music was and it weaned people off the idea of owning music. Like suddenly music became this thing that was in the ether. Like I think this really interesting thing now we call, we talk about the cloud, but actually the cloud is loads of hardware all over the world, but we have somehow imbued it with this kind of metaphysical thing, like it's just up in the air. And that kind of started in from music, music lovers with Napster. Suddenly music was just there. It was just out there. And of course, initially people downloaded music onto computers and they either played them from their computers or they burnt them onto CDs, which sounds really old school now. But then MP3 players came along. How much of a game changer were the original MP3 players? I'm not talking about the iPad now, but the ones that came before the iPod. MP3 players were kind of like when when my generation of old folkies started getting turned onto this. And that was because the MP3 player in a lot of ways was an improvement on carting a CD player or a ghetto blaster if you're that old or a Walkman around with you because you could put a lot more music on it. I think for people like me, it we basically uploaded our existing collections onto it. It was less about finding this horde of music online. So that, I think, was a big step in kind of mainstreaming MP3s. The iPod then takes it another step later because the MP3 players were being made by loads and loads of different companies. I find one of the really interesting things about the internet is that technically it's decentralized and we are all atomized nodes floating around in this ether. But actually, we seem to have this huge appetite for massive middlemen. So when the when Apple came up with the iPlayer and the iPod, suddenly a whole generation of people who like massive middlemen uh, all gravitated towards it. And then you have a centre to the whole thing. And, you know, as you say, Apple entered the fray with their, their first generation iPod. iMac, iBook, iPod. What is iPod? iPod is an MP3 music player, has CD quality music. And apart from the way it legitimised digital downloads for the recording industry, which we can talk about in a second. The big selling point for the iPod was that it could, it could contain 1,000 songs. Now, this is a quantum leap because it's your, for most people, it's their entire music library. This is huge. Now, my initial 
MP3 player could contain 32 songs. And I just thought that was amazing. But this notion that there was 1,000 songs available on the iPad, how big a deal was that? I don't think I owned 1,000 songs when I was a teenager. So it it meant that basically, like there was a couple of things about it. It looked really good. It felt very solid. So we're talking about the ephemeral nature of the internet. So for a lot of people who were very wedded to the physical aspect of music, the iPod was a great design because it felt like a lump of metal you held in your hand and it felt like the songs were actually yours and that you had bought it either originally on a CD, on CDs or vinyl or you were buying it from the iTunes, or, or, which was what they had set up. And they were trying to set themselves up as the centre of online music at that time. And of course, what they did was they created a way for artists and for record companies to efficiently sell digitised music. How important was that as a development? It's interesting in retrospect because it was a bit of a cul-de-sac. They saw it, I think it was a lifeboat for the music industry. They saw, okay, if we kind of partner with iTunes and we work with this new technology there, I think I remember like songs on iTunes were like, was it a dollar or a euro at the time? And it was a very kind of fixed price point and it seemed very straightforward. And for five minutes, it looked like they'd solved the problem. They'd lost their customer base. But I don't think that the newer generations coming onto the internet wanted that. They didn't want to own music in the same way that we own music because music was much more central, I think, to kind of cultural identity for older generations, partly because of its physicality. Um, So we needed like this gateway drug of the iPod to get us into the digital world. One of the most controversial moments in Apple's iTunes history was when they partnered with U2 in 2014. You would consider putting Songs of Innocence out to over half a billion people free in, say, five seconds from now. Yes. We could... We press the button, it'll take a little longer to get all the way across the internet, but it can start in five seconds. This gesture wasn't entirely received in the way they would have wanted, though, was it? (laughs) I love that in retrospect, because it's it's a mark of how complex our relationship or the world's relationship with Bono is, that even when you two gave us a free album, everyone got really annoyed. Oops. Um, I'm sorry about that. Um, had this beautiful idea. Monica got carried away with ourselves. Um, artists are prone to that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, and what's fascinating to me as well is like lots of people are acting like it was some sort of massive privacy breach. Now, like 12 years later, we're all like randomly giving all our information to the tech giants. You two giving us a free album was like, I can't believe they did that to us. But it was all a mark of the way the industry at that time were hoping things were going to go. Like they they missed the boat with Napster. There's there's an interesting thing, I think, as well, about how possibly if they'd introduced this earlier, they could have got a generation used to the idea of buying music earlier. But what you had at the time of iTunes is CDs were still being sold. So the likes of me, who was a music fan, was still buying CDs and the iPod was kind of for when I was out and about. Digital music wasn't the primary way people who actually spent money on music were consuming music. And for younger people, the 
barn door was open and the horse was bolted, they'd suddenly realise, oh, music is everywhere all the time and I can have access to it for nothing. And Napster died in 2002, but it was just followed by a spate of different forms of file sharing and torrent sharing sites. Um, So if you were a young millennial who had got used to the idea that music was free, you weren't going to be going to iTunes. And I think if you were like an older music fan, you were still buying CDs. So a lot of music was kind of going in that direction. Coming up, how the iPod changed music as a cultural force. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Did the iPod and then the subsequent technologies that came along change the way we perceive and the way we consume music as a cultural force? I think completely. Like, I look back on it now, and I think if you look at the history of pop music from the 50s on, like, you look at kind of the start of the teenager and youth culture, the centre of all youth culture and counterculture was music. So literature, cinema, were always kind of slightly less cool than music and musicians. In a lot of ways, before the internet, music kind of was the internet. Like we'd listen to music and Morrissey would sing about veganism or vegetarianism or Crass would sing about anarchism or Bananarama would mention Robert De Niro. So like everything was like reaching out from the pop songs you listened to the, to the next thing you got interested in. You know, if a singer songwriter mentioned Jack Kerouac, you wanted to read Jack Kerouac. So music, I think, acted as a center to pop culture. This changed, I think, with social media. I think social media is now the center of pop culture and memes and TikTok and and music is kind of like increasingly a background sound. I think another thing that changed is that there's no mainstream anymore. So when there was a very strong cultural mainstream, there was really strong countercultures around it you could build your identity on. So if you were a goth in the 80s, it was partly because you weren't like those squares listening to Stock Aitken and Waterman. But now there's a kind of everything all the time culture. So there's you, you find your niches, but those niches are less imbued with a sense of politics or identity, I think, than they were in the past. Another thing that changed with the iPod was the fact that you no longer had to buy an album. You could buy a song from an album. And then there was the other thing that you no longer had to listen to an album in the order the artist intended you to listen to the album. You could just shuffle the songs. Did that change how we perceived music, do you think? I think so. Now, now part of that is with with new technologies and new forms, there's that whole thing of the medium is the message, right? So, you know, the length of the pop song is that very much down to the the medium it was put on, like vi- the type of vinyl that was used in the past. Albums were to do with how much you could fit on two sides of a bit of vinyl. I think generally now 
people get their culture in a more atomized way generally. So like I have a tendency I, to not listen to albums in the way I used to. In the past, it was like um, as, as a kind of muso, you'd go, OK, I'm going to sit through this difficult five minute bass solo because then I'll earn the pop chorus of the next song. Now it's just like I click straight on. You know, I don't listen to the, the bits that I used to see as the roughage in the albums in the past. Like a lot of how we consume the stuff has changed. I think the biggest thing is just the sense in the Internet now that everything is everywhere all the time. The, the idea people have of the Internet that it, that is untrue, that it's not hardware, that it's that, that it's in the cloud and that we have access to it all. I think it creates a very different relationship with culture, which is much more atomized, which is like you can even see it in the sense of humor of uh, as as young, like the sense of humor in memes is getting more and more abstract because everything is a reference to a reference to a reference. There's TikTok songs like friends of mine with ki- with small kids are saying that they know the weirdest songs. Like they'll play an album, they go, oh, "I know that song," and the- it's because they've heard thirty snip thirty second snippet of it on a on a TikTok. And is the fact that everything is now available all the time at virtually no cost does that diminish the value we place on on, on music? I mean, how, are we are we worse off as a result? So I, I'd be hard pressed to be sure if it were worse off or better. I think it's just different. Like, I think there was a thing when I, say, discovered punk and indie music when I was in my late teens, that it was it was very personal. So you'd meet a friend who, was, who knew stuff and had, had got the bus to Dublin and had gone into Comet or one of those shops and I'd bought one of those tapes of a punk band for like, I remember the, like hearing bands from Dublin like Paranoid Visions and Cunis because my friend Dara had got them and then he'd record them for me. And like, I remember like people would do mad things like my friend Dara made a because he was trying to educate me because I was into terrible middle of the road music like Dire Straits. And he'd like made this like family tree of punk, like just meticulous with Byra, like how all the bands were linked. Because there was a much more, it was, it, was, it felt like, like I said earlier, it felt like secret lore. You were being initiated in the mysteries of the genre you had chosen as your identity. And that identity felt more than just, I like this kind of music. Um, that's all to do with scarcity. And what the internet did is it removed scarcity. So what's interesting now, I think, is you can see people building those cultural identities around other things. Sometimes it's very positive things like activism, and sometimes it's weird things that I don't think are positive, like cryptocurrency and NFTs. Like the way people used to build cultural identities around musical genres and then find other cultural forms through that. I think they're doing it in a much more niched off way with lots of different things now. And I don't know if we're ever going to move back from that. The iPod and the technologies that came after it completely transformed how the charts operate. The charts used to be the centre point of all music. Are the charts still relevant? Does it matter now if somebody goes to number one? Or do we just have to assume that Ed Sheeran will have the positions number one, two, three, four and five every time he releases a new album? I think even 10 or 15 years ago, I had a good sense of the pop music young people in inverted commas were listening to just from listening to the radio sporadically or going into shops. I'm really struck now that my nephew might play a song all and not like a kind of, not like this is weird avant-garde crunk music. This is like the pop music they're listening to. And I'll never have heard it before because... 
one of the things that's happened is there's no, I think, is there's no real cultural mainstream anymore. There's just loads and loads of niches. So there's the music that the likes of me and you listen to, and it's totally different from the music that my nephews and godson are listening to. And there's no real place where we hear it all at the same time. There's a few like outliers like Ed Sheeran, but like I have a... Uh, I have a habit of sometimes coming in late at night and putting on MTV bass and <laughs> playing music. I've never, like, I quite enjoy it, but I'm going, I've never heard of any of these people. And they're clearly huge, which I don't think would have been the case for people my age 15 years ago, because there was a centralized delivery system. Now there's loads and loads of niches. And if you're not on TikTok, you don't know what that is. And if you're not on Twitter, like it's similar with stupid arguments. If you're not on Twitter, you've no idea of what is animating Twitter today. Is there any sense, Patrick, uh, as to what might come next? Because the technology behind recorded music typically moved quite slowly initially. A vinyl in all its different speeds from 78 to 33, was the dominant force for more than half a century. And then the cassette had around 20 years in the sun. The CD was around for maybe 15 years before it started to be replaced by the iPod and streaming technologies. What's next? Will we all be listening to music in the metaverse? Will U2 albums be downloaded directly into our brains? I mean, where do we go from here? I wouldn't dare guess. Like, I sometimes think about the the really short TikTok snippets of music and the way a lot of young people are being kind of learning about older forms of music when it becomes a 30 second TikTok. And I wonder, is that going to develop into a new form, like a really short burst of music? Is that what they're going to be making next? Because often the technology does lead these things. But I honestly wouldn't have a clue. Like, interestingly, we've been watching Selling Sunset and I was really struck by how, what are these songs? Because if you listen to something like The Hills, 15, 20 years ago, and which, you know, a reality show like Selling Sunset, it was filled with pop songs that you knew. Whereas in Selling Sunset, they sound a bit like we know them, but we don't know them. And then Anna found this article about how there's kind of content farm type production operations producing these songs, and it's way cheaper than getting Rihanna or Beyonce's version. So you get a Beyonce-like song and you stick it in the soundtrack of Selling Sunset for, Sunset for less money. And part of the reason they can do that now and they couldn't do it in the past is because music isn't as important anymore. R- Rihanna-ish is good enough. 15, 20 years ago, they kind of have to get the Rihanna song. There's loads of unforeseen things like that. Like, I, I, I wouldn't even dare guess. Thanks very much, Patrick. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Connor. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back on Monday.